Hello, Woodworms. I'm Rad Ftirius, and this is the Hand Toolbook Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. I'd like to kick off and say thanks to Peter Marshall for his feedback on my ratings. Anytime I can get feedback from the listeners helps me focus on things that are important for you. I guess I've taken a few detours in this first series of books. This is mainly because I got a few opportunities to interview authors and I thought I'd jump at those. But I thought it might be worth sharing some of the topics I'm going to cover off so you've got an idea of where the podcasts are going. Workbenches. Please, please, please let me get around to workbenches soon. It's an eternal mystery and debate for new hand tool woodworkers and I think it's fair to state that the workbench is to us what the table saw is to power tool users. I plan to review both the book I'd buy about workbenches and Ingenious Mechanics so that there's some consideration on high versus low workbenches. This is really a top priority for me right now. Books about tools. I've spoken about making tools and planes, but what would be really good is an all-round book about tools. I'll give you my view on the best book in that category. Then some books about wood. If we've covered off tools and we've got a bench, it might make sense to discuss the material that we are using. There are two very good resource books in this category, that I'd like to suggest for hand tool woodworkers. Books about finishing. There are two books that I think are worth your consideration. I'll discuss them and let you decide which one you'd prefer to acquire. Then Graham Blackburn and Charles Hayward. In a time before YouTube, you may be surprised to know that people actually wrote things down rather than published videos and podcasts. These two stand out for me as giants in this space. I think it's worth discussing at least one of each of their books. Now clearly if you can do basic math, you'll figure out that we're talking about the next 10 episodes or so. And I also want to do one on Mortis and Tenet magazine, well the edition that I think is the best one to get. I want to throw in a book about stuff that you can do with your kids, and I'll probably get sidetracked by whatever is top of my mind at the time. So it's pretty safe to say that these topics are going to go from where we are now through to about episode 30. So by their nature, these books are the best in the category as far as I'm concerned. I don't see any point in doing bad books first. And this does have consequences in terms of the ratings. Really, if I'm honest, the ratings are there for comparative purposes, so I'll try not to give two eights in a category. But most of these books are going to be pegged at eight for now. They're the best books I know about the subject. The ratings are really just an investment in the future. I hope that by the time we get to episode 50, or even better, episode 100, this will give you a good range of ratings. For now, I'm doing the best books I know first, so listen to the narrative and be content to decide whether this is the kind of book you'd like to buy. In terms of a shop update, I've got my frame saw tuned up and working this past weekend and it's purring through the wood. I was very excited because this was not my starting point. When I first put it together, it pulled to the left like a real tiger on every stroke. It wasn't difficult to get it tuned, but I guess there's a lesson here about expecting things to work perfectly. Safe to say that in the hand tool world, sharpening, fettling and tuning are skills you'll have to learn. I'm also doing a bit of wood turning at the moment, and I thought that while this is not specifically hand tool related, I'd recommend Sean Graham. He's on YouTube as worth the effort. Cleverly, he concatenated this into one word, so he's W-O-R-T-H-E-F-F-O-R-T, worth effort, or worth the effort if you read it together. I truly believe he's one of the best educators on YouTube, and his start woodworking and prerequisite course, as well as his instructional series, are some of the best educational videos on hand tools that are freely available on the internet. Go check him out and support him if you can. 
I recently made my first acorn box and it's solely down to his video. Sean, if you're listening, a big shout out to you for the incredible work you do. You're really teaching rather than just showing artsy videos online. I appreciate the time, the effort and the thought that goes into what you do. And now on to today's show. I wish a podcast could have photos. I wish a podcast could let you feel the texture of a book, but I guess we'll just have to settle for words. You may know Joshua Klein and Mike Optograph as the people behind Mortis and Tenon magazine. If you don't, I'd suggest you stop the podcast and go and order a copy immediately. You're in for a treat. Joshua is a conservator craftsman with an absolute passion for period furniture techniques and authenticity. What I've always enjoyed about his writing is the fact that he strives to increase knowledge of how things were really made. Investigative archaeology, if you will. I get the sense that he's the kind of person that will not claim to tell you how something was done, unless he's done it himself. He's written two books, and I intended to do an episode on another work as possible, his latest book about the hand tool construction of the new blacksmith shop at the Mortis and Tenon headquarters. Unfortunately, coronavirus has meant that my copy is still gathering dust in a courier depot somewhere, and given that I'm not sure when our lockdown will end, I thought I'd jump in and review his first book. Before we go there, if you're curious about the second book, there's an accompanying video which is well worth watching. I got the kids to watch it on the day of release, and my three little smartphone bunnies grudgingly admitted that it was kind of interesting. That's pretty high praise from an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, and 12-year-old. Today's book is Hands Employed Aright. It's a story of a furniture maker, Jonathan Fisher, a clergyman who lived in Maine in the late 18th through to the mid-19th century. Jonathan Fisher is an enigmatic figure. I'd suggest that had he chosen a different route in life, he'd be a celebrated polymath like Benjamin Franklin or Leonardo da Vinci. Instead, driven by his faith, he accepted a posting to a frontier town in Maine and became the first minister in Blue Hills. The capability to reconstruct his life and his furniture making is incredible. He kept a series of detailed daily diaries in a personal shorthand that documents everything he did. Alongside this, a treasure trove of his actual furnitures and tools have miraculously survived intact to the present. In an undertaking that took over five years, Joshua Klein carefully uncovered and reconstructed the tale of Jonathan's furniture making. Where peculiarities of the tools were found, Joshua went further and tried to work out why he'd made them in that specific manner. The end product is a rich book that has to be physically seen to be truly appreciated. There's a wonderful texture, layout and composition to the book that makes it suitable as a prized coffee table book. To get your non-handle friends onto the right path, of course. Just leave them waiting for a few minutes with the book front and centre and let the book do the talking. The book's broken into an introduction in seven chapters, but I'd break it into two main sections. The first half of the book is text-driven and covers various topics. The last 140 pages is a pictorial catalogue of the furniture of Jonathan Fisher and the tools he used. I'm going to start with the back half of the book first. This section is really museum quality work. You have clear colour photos of the items in question, you get the dimensions, the woods used, any inscriptions or defining marks or special characteristics. Joshua describes how the item was constructed and the joinery. Tool marks are given special attention, so for example the chest is described as follows. Only the front, sides and top of the lid were smooth planed. All other surfaces have four plane marks. The underside of the bottom is rough with lots of tear-out from a heavily cambered plane and there is a large tear-out on the underside of PL cleat. There are saw marks under the profile of the feet with considerable chamfer on the inside. 
the tools layout lines are still visible. Then there is a description of the item's condition. More complicated pieces include detailed construction notes and photos from various angles. If there are specifically interesting details, you can bet that there's going to be photos of them. Admittedly, these are not construction plans, but I'd suggest that if you are motivated to make a replica of an item, there is more than enough information to allow you to build one. I found that the real benefit of this section is for inspiration and understanding. If you're mulling over a project in your head, paging through the back section of the book will provide a wealth of ideas. I'd suggest it's going to be a reference book that will continue to provide benefit to you for years to come. Because of the range of items Jonathan constructed, there is also bound to be a project in your skill range. And even if your style differs from Jonathan's honest country furniture, there's a wealth of knowledge on how to construct the items. And don't get me wrong, by country furniture I mean honest, practical, fast, but some surprisingly elegant and complicated pieces. Jonathan was not a rich man, and he worked diligently for most of his life to provide a comfortable living for his family and supplement his modest income. That meant that furniture that he made was made to the level of the customer, without the luxury of time for complicated details, unless the customer was prepared to pay for them. The more ornate chest of drawers and desk and bookcase would grace modern-day living rooms, but some of his cupboards are purely utilitarian, the kind of thing you'd built for a more modest purpose. Paging through the pieces, I felt quite a bittersweet connection with the past. When you look at the cradle and the toy cradle, you cannot help feel but closer to the man. The section that follows his furniture covers the workshop furniture in detail, and again, if you want to construct Jonathan Fisher's stake bench or make a copy of his shaving horse, you can do this from the details and pictures. There's his tool chest and his lathe, and then we onto his tools. His plans are described in detail and illustrated by multiple photographs. There are bench planes, rabbits, dado, fixed rabbits, and many molding planes. Jonathan made all of these planes, and the characteristic mouse handle is found on them. Saws are covered, including his wooden mitre saw, and this ties in nicely with the description of work holding that is described earlier in the book. Augers and bits, mortise chisels, lathe chisels, squares, mallets, knives and scrapers are all included. As I've mentioned before, I'm a big fan of homemade wooden screws. I think that this predilection of mine might have been started, at least partly by this book, and the collection and photographs of wooden screws and screw making equipment, and Jonathan Fisher's vice. Spokeshave, file, strop and tote pattern, all clearly photographed and described. While in books like the Anarchist Tool Chest, early American woodworkers' toolkits are often described, I'd suggest that in time this book will become one of the classics alongside Benjamin Seaton's tool chest, in terms of being an incredible insight into what a typical toolkit might have contained. If you're lusting after a new gadget at an online shop, I'd suggest this is a great book to give you perspective on what you really need. Just make sure you never share this book with your spouse, or the tool budget is likely to be a real loser. Now let's return to the beginning and discuss the real narrative of the book. The book begins with a sobering foreword that in no way trivialises the difficulty of existing on the main frontier. Just chopping 15 to 20 cords of firewood each year to survive the winter is no small undertaking, but adding to this, the pastor was committed to a world of activities that I believe we have no real appreciation of today. Planting, harvesting, Animal husbandry, sign writing, composing, fly sheets for funerals, speculating on tinctures and remedies for common ailments, and a colossal amount of sheer walking to visit parishioners made for a daily life that had no shortage of urgent work. 
and yet somehow Jonathan wrote, painted, learned new languages, and provided for his family. And to supplement his income for the church, Jonathan never missed an opportunity, which brings us to his diaries and, of course, furniture construction. He meticulously documented his daily activities in a shorthand of his own devising, leaves an incredible record that is probably the most complete of any pre-industrial woodworking that will ever be uncovered. That said, it's probably going to be a source of new revelations for a long time to come, as their historical record is translated and compiled. And yet, over and beyond the record, perhaps the honesty of the record is what makes this book a moving read. I worked on a chair, broke it putting it together. Stuck a chisel into the thumb of my left hand. These are not the kind of quotes you get from many historical characters. Memoirs which have been carefully curated and presented to show the best side of a character. In fact, many historical biographies are written almost as justifications of actions. This book is different. The reader can follow Fisher from his early life through his education at Harvard, and I think Joshua has provided enough information to give you the necessary background on the man. The book's not an autobiography, and I think the author made some trade-offs in terms of completeness to focus on those aspects critical to understanding his woodwork. There's enough to give context. However, if like me, you are intrigued to know more about Jonathan as a person and less about his woodworking, another good read is Mary Ellen Chase's book, Jonathan Fisher, Main Parson. If you shop around a book, you should find a copy at a good price. I bought one for less than the cost of shipping. Fisher was a multi-talented individual, and the fact that he was a talented artist helps in the book. There's prints of his work, including what I think is his defining work, a painting of the Blue Hills, as it existed in his time, and a self-portrait. On the other hand, I'll let you judge whether scripture animals is best consigned to the past or not. Fisher's handmade clock is covered early on, and it boggles my mind to think of creating a similar creation with the technologies available to him at the time. A photo of a wooden plane with 1796 JF engraved on the side reminds the reader of how long ago this timepiece was actually made. If you're interested in his working environment, there's a commissioned artwork envisaging it, as well as pictures and diagrams that will give you context. Suffice it to say his workshop is a far cry from a modern, well-lit shop. I guess Fish had more space than I did, but I'm thankful that I don't have to deal with sheep when I'm planning or using a chisel. I like that Joshua interrogates the details so thoroughly. This is a history book in a way, but one where the phrase experimental archaeology keeps coming to mind. His observation on the peg holes, on the mouse tote, they're not just observations, because he's replicated the environment and he's used the tools in the same way that the parson used the tools. There is no way that you would have understood how Jonathan Fisher cut his mitres without putting all of this stuff together and working in the same way that he did. By the time you've covered the first 70 pages of the book, I think you'll have a really good background on who Fisher was and how he made the furniture that he did. Where relevant, historical contexts from other well-known sources are contrasted and compared to Fisher's situation. And with this background covered, we get into the furniture making of Fisher on the frontier. Try saying that three times quickly. There are techniques such as grain painting that you may not be familiar with, but most of the section is a detailed deconstruction of how things were put together and insights gained by examining the pieces closely. I really enjoyed the narrative about the child's desk. It's clear that Fisher had a fun side when creating for his own account, and it should be remembered that the solid utilitarian construction of most of his furniture tied into what customers wanted. 
certainly feel like the Birch set of draws shows that Fisher was capable of far more given the opportunity. In this section of the book there are a range of forms that Fisher worked on, but for me the most intriguing section was Fisher the Tinkerer. It's a section that is a fascinating account of a very clever mind, and I like to think that by 1820, when Fisher had finally become debt-free after 25 years of industrious work, he must have been able to indulge a few more hours a week into explorations of scientific aspects that interested him. Certainly Joshua makes the note that around this time, the production of his furniture drops off. I hope that having employed his hands aright, that at this point in his life he was able to employ them in a direction of his own choosing. There is a section that takes you through the Fisher house with furniture in situ, and this gives further context to the work. But I think that the subsequent section where Joshua Klein gives insight into his shop-based research is one of the most important of the book. I think that often Hantel's use is romanticised as being slow or old-fashioned. The author does a lot to dispel these perceptions by showing how building furniture in this manner can be very efficient, if done with a pre-industrial mindset. So much of how we judge quality today is based on machine work, and I'm not suggesting that precision is not important when building hundreds of soulless replicas off a pattern. But I agree with Joshua that the slightest variations in dovetail angles are not at all important when you're looking at a piece as a whole. When you read the measurements in the back of the book, remember that these are approximations and averages, because not every dimension is exactly the same. If you're building with the materials on hand and adjusting subcomponents to each other, there's no need to be precise with intolerances. We have this wonderful capability to be either remarkably relaxed about comparative measurements or to be perfectly accurate by showing components and subcomponents to each other when measuring. And yet these old craftsmen knew what they were doing. By deliberately not matching shoulders on tenons, they could ensure that the show face snugged up perfectly. Consider this in your own work. Is an unseen shoulder that is out by a lot, does that matter? If you compare that to the fact that the front shoulder will then mate correctly. Maybe leaving the line on one side and splitting the line on the other is a much better way than trying to be perfectly accurate on both and ultimately failing. If you're a fan of Christopher Shaw's low Roman workbench, Joshua shares a few insights into the book based on his experiences and I think that this section is definitely worth rereading a few times. For me this was one of the first books that celebrated the idea that tear out on the inside of a piece was acceptable. Like the concept of reference faces, this is a concept that becomes mundane the more you practice it, but it seemed radical the first time I encountered it. In your hand tool journey, I'd suggest that this book will help you learn from those who came before us. People who had no access to bandsaws or electric planers or shop assistants as they romantically called today. And from their experience, there's a wealth of knowledge to be gained. My only sadness as I completed this book is that more people in the pre-industrial age did not document what they did with the care that Fisher did. So on that note, let's move away from the book and conclude. I've also got a small easter egg for listeners. A little while back I reached out to Joshua Klein and asked him for some input for the show. A view into his head, if you will, about his top three books. If you've listened to the Mortis and Tenon podcast, it'll come as no surprise to you that top of the list is A Handmade Life by Bill Copperthwaite. Next was David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship. And finally Country Furniture by Aldrin Watson. Joshua also had the following to say. After those are digested, I challenge folks to work through Albert Borgman's Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life. Not a woodworking book per se, 
but there is a ton of application to the importance of working with your hands in the 21st century. Thanks Joshua. I really appreciate those suggestions and the insight. Your top three are all books that I've loved, and while I haven't read Borgwin's book, it's now on my wish list on Amazon. So listeners, if you're looking for something to read, these are the suggestions of the editor of the world's best hand tool magazine. I'll say that again unashamedly. If you're looking for something to read, these are the suggestions of the editor of the world's best hand tool magazine. So in conclusion, Hands Employed a Right is published by Lost Art Press and you can find it on their website or on the Mortis and Tenon website. It's a large format book, lavishly illustrated with colour photography and it's 270 pages long. As at May 2020, it costs $57. I'm giving the book 8.5 out of 10 in the category Historical, which bumps it into first place in this category. It has beautiful insights about an enigmatic character, and the second section of the books is done in a manner that will allow you to walk a few steps in Jonathan's footprints. If you choose to make a replica or a derivative of one of the pieces of the furniture in the book, you have everything you need to make sure you can do that. At the same time, it's such a beautiful book that you can probably get away with leaving it on the coffee table in the house and not have to relegate it to the shop or wherever else your spouse makes you hide your woodworking library. So that's it for now, woodworms. And remember, go scrub up the back of a piece of furniture and leave massive tear out where it isn't visible. And keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favorite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying, that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes. <laughs>